Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Each month, over 80,000 people download podcasts produced from the fevered mind of Royfield Brown. They cover a gamut of topics, like maps, politics, American presidents, history, the archers, Formula One, Jamaican culture, and Englishness. Go to wherever you get your podcast and type in Royfield Brown to discover a new favorite podcast today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome, I'm Royful Brown, who is sat surprised in a grey and overcast Oakland in the East Bay in California. I'm somewhat surprised because I think a lot of America is. The red wave has not happened at best, it's a red puddle, if we can even call it that. Not all the results are in as, as we record, but I'm joined on stage by Kelly Saunders, good friend of mine on this app, Tyrion Fisher, who's a fantastic friend of the podcast in Germany, Paul Dodridge, who's also a good friend of the app in Los Angeles, Greg Sattel, who I believe is in Pennsylvania, Aaron Fisher. Aaron, I thought you were going to be on a plane right now. Thank you for joining us, unless you decided to be a high roller, a big baller, and you've got in-flight Wi-Fi. And Piotr Curzon. Piotr Curzon, where exactly are you today, sir? I'm in the hub of it all in Washington, D.C., my friend. Woof. So you're in the heart of all things political when it comes to the United States. So what we're going to do today, considering not all of the results are in, and as one Aaron Fisher said to me yesterday, he said, Royfield, by the time you want to record your show, maybe we won't even know the results, how prescient he was. One thing we do know is that this was not the result that Republicans expected. Uh, we talked a lot about debates and when some candidates did debates and some didn't do them. Had the October 25th debate been September 30th, would this race have changed? I think there's a broader issue here. So think about this. We have the worst inflation in four decades. 
the worst collapse in real wages in 40 years, the worst crime wave since the 1990s, the worst border crisis in U.S. history. We have Joe Biden, who is the least popular president since Harry Truman, since presidential polling happened, and there wasn't a red wave. That is a searing indictment of the Republican Party. That is a searing indictment of the message that we have been sending to the voters. They looked at all of that and said, and looked at the Republican alternative and said, no thanks. The Republican Party needs to do a really deep introspection look in the mirror right now because this is, this is an absolute disaster. We need to start, we need to look at who won today. Ron DeSantis, DeWine, uh, these, these governors, Kemp. Kemp. Abbott. Abbott, you know, look at these governors. This is the path to the future. And, you know, these these radical candidates who, who ran far behind them has put the Republican Party in a terrible position and voters have left an have, have indicted the Republican Party. Kelly Saunders, you are a self-avowed independent who leans Republican. So you're going to be our voice of the independents who, according to exit polls, broke for the Democrats. Why did independents break for the Democrats last night? I think possibly for the same reasons that a lot of Republicans expected a red wave. I think that the clip you just played said it well. When you have people who exist on the on the margins of the outside, they're more extremist. That's not what people want. I think that people don't want election deniers. They, as much as MAGA has momentum, I don't think that that's really what the majority of the country wants. And I also don't think that people whether they're independent or not, but see themselves aligned with the Republican Party, don't appreciate this takeover of the Republican Party that is now redefining the word rhino and telling them they want them out. I think that there are a lot of reasonable people in the country, and last night's results showed it. Paul Dudridge, you most definitely are a Republican. What the hell happened last night? Is this the end of the Trumpian fever hold on the Republican Party? Yes, I think it is, actually. I think it has to be. I mean, I'm MAGA, America first, Trump till I die. You know, it's like Kiss Army or something. But whatever the narrative, I sent you a clip. I think I've posted a clip. This was like four weeks ago, I said on British TV that, I, that the repeal of Roe v. Wade was bringing two to one female first-time voters to registration. And this was a hot topic, like, four, six weeks ago. And then just in the last week or so, I couldn't get any pundits to agree with me that actually women were motivated. I mean, there were many other factors, don't get me wrong. And let's remember what we're talking about here is like, it looks like we've won the House, the Republicans have won the House, and we may very well have the Senate, but it goes to a runoff. I think we've just done Arizona, but I'm not 100% sure. But the point is, Trump doesn't exist as a politician, he exists as a narrative. He is the 800-pound gorilla, and the fact is he has now been shown to be mortal. He, I'm, I'm not even sure that DeSantis could win against whoever the Democrats put up next time around. Trump is practically a religious character, and so Trump and MAGA and America First are not going to disappear by the next time around. So if Trump doesn't run, and I think it's unlikely that he will, but I think he's probably still going to announce next week, which was my other prediction on Sky News. I still think he's going to announce, but I think ultimately he now can't be the candidate because MAGA exists as, I think, as a, a scary specter. Oh my God, there's this, they seem to have all this power and all this control. And now suddenly they just look human. So they can even win the house, but they don't win it in a landslide overnight. When I, I did GB News in the UK, 
that clip I've just used, I've just posted up there. I got so much shit on YouTube being called like, you know, Dudridge is a communist. He's drinking the Kool-Aid of the mainstream media because I was saying like, look, I don't think I said if they do at the height of the MAGA thing, I was saying, I think if we do win the Senate, it's by one seat. I don't think it's going to be and people are going now we're going to win seven seats and we're going to win. Paul, a th- can you hear me? Paul, yeah, I, I totally can hear you. But if we're not careful, you're not going to have anything else to contribute for the rest of the show. So I'm just going to pause you there. So anyway, yes, that, that was where I'll shut up. I'm happy to shut up. <laughs> Aaron Fisher, you are a professional political soothsayer. This is what you do, sir. What exactly happened last night? What does it tell us about the American electorate in 2022? So, uh, man, did I tell you so? I think I told you so. You know, looking at what was coming into this election, looking at what was going on coming into this election, it was really clear that the media was just missing a whole bunch of narratives. Like there was a, a modeling of the electorate that just didn't make any sense whatsoever. Because what we were seeing in the registration numbers is particularly amongst the young and the female suggested something very, very different than what the polls were saying. And I kept looking at these numbers and I have to say, like, I wasn't stridently saying that the Democrats were going to have like a huge night or something because, you know, there was a lot working against them. But when you looked at the registration numbers post-Dobbs, there was this huge bump for Democratic registrations. And it was young and it was female. It, somehow the polls didn't pick up on the facts or the fact that this was going on. The second one was the young. There were all these things that the Biden administration did for young people, right? They passed climate AC hotel. They passed climate legislation. They did something on guns, not nearly as much as a lot of us would have liked, but they did something. There's student loan forgiveness and the 18 to 29 demographic at this. And these are early numbers that might change. They voted by 28 points for the Democrats. Gen Z is fired up to vote. They're voting far more than previous generations at this age. They have no interest in MAGA. 28 points is a shellacking. And those young people are, I think, the story that really deserves to be told that hasn't been told yet. Adam, first off, I need to apologize to you for not basically heralding the fact that you were going to be on the stage. So please forgive me, sir. But over there in, in Canada and British Columbia, and which were the races when you were watching the results came in, which led you to believe that basically the red wave was not going to happen? Thanks, Roy Feld, and I And I apologize for being Canadian. <laughs> the, states, the states that I watched early were North Carolina and Georgia. And I specifically looked at how the Democratic candidates were doing in the urban counties, such as Mecklenburg County, which is Charlotte in North Carolina, and Wake County, which is Riley, as well as in County in the metropolitan Atlanta, as well as the county out in Augusta in Georgia, and kind of just essentially zeroed in on those counties to see Democratic performance. And in fact, Democrats outperformed the candidates both. Uh, governor and Senate races, they outperformed in these Democratic-rich, voting-rich urban counties. Uh, Adam, just on that point, because the one thing that I've been saying for the last two, three months is that since Dobbs, the Democrats have outperformed their polling on every special election in America. Whether they've won that seat or not, they've outperformed. Is this fundamentally because there is an enthusiasm gap, which is now being matched, i.e. that the Democrats or people who want to vote Democrat have a reason to get out and vote. And as Aram said, abortion has, has been one of those reasons why, why they had to get out there and vote. Is that the reason why that maybe the polls were slightly off? And it, so hence our expectations were. 
Yeah, I think if I think that's right, the pollsters were wrong. And I think specifically, they were wrong about the concerns voters had about abortion. It was uh, trending as a nominal issue of importance, something in the range of eight to 18% in a lot of the the polls in the in the weeks leading up to the midterms were, were highlighted as being the number one issue for voters when in fact the exit polls out of MSNBC, CNN and others indicated that just that it was just shy of inflation in the economy is the number one issue somewhere in the 30s for voters. Gotcha. Greg Sattel, you're over there in, in Philadelphia. One of the races which everybody was actually glued to was Dr. Oz and Fetterman. Give us a sense of how much that was dominating the airwaves in Pennsylvania. Well, I think it's interesting to put the Pennsylvania race in the context of the national right, because Pennsylvania really was ground zero. And I strongly believe that people vote their values and they align their perspective on this issue or that with, I think that's colored by what they feel reflects their own values. And I think a big part of Trump's success was that people felt that they'd been screwed over by a technocratic, meritocratic elite that had left them behind and screwed them over. And I think Trump, they felt Trump would champion them in and shared their frustration with technocratic, meritocratic elites. And I think that the debate between Oz and, and Fetterman showed how much that had flipped, where you had Fetterman who was still recovering from a stroke, certainly impaired, not eloquent, but people looked at him and said, that guy shares my values. That guy cares about me. Where Oz came in a little bit too smooth, a little bit too superior, and a little bit too disingenuous. And I think that's how things have kind of flipped. And when we talk about abortion and when we talk about democracy, we're not just talking about abortion. We're talking about an out of control Supreme Court that was stolen. We're talking about an extreme Republican party that is unhinged and wants to bring about a biblical America. And so that's what I think is sort of the microcosm of this election and also what determines what's what happens going forward. Which party do people feel reflects their values? If you're in the audience, this is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic looks, looks primarily at US and UK politics and compares and contrasts. If you like what you're hearing, please hit the little green icon in the top left of your smartphone become a member of the club. And if you wouldn't be so kind afterwards, why don't you go on to Apple iTunes and go find Mid-Atlantic and give us a five-star review. For those of you who've been posting reviews in, in the last two or three weeks, I thank you. What I will do is give you a roll call at the end of this podcast. The more reviews that we get, the more listeners we get. And we've had a record amount of listeners, some over some 10,000 just in the last month. So I'd like to thank you for your support of this podcast. Well, Matt, there's lots to analyze from last night, but I would make these three key points. 
Georgia here has yet again emerged as the state that could hold the balance of power in the US Senate in its hands. Neither candidate won enough votes to win last night, so we will move to a runoff on December the 6th, which means it could be Georgia voters who ultimately decide whether to uh, give the Senate to the Republicans or to the Democrats. Secondly, democracy prevailed. There had been fears that the election would lead to unrest. That did not happen. And most importantly, uh, Joe Biden urged voters to put democracy, extremism, civil liberties on the ballot last night, and it appears that they did just that. Yes, the economy was the number one issue, but not to the exclusion of everything else. And that played very well for the Democrats and for Biden. Biden last night. And lastly, after the semi-implosion of his candidates, are we witnessing the beginning of the second end of Donald Trump? Mamadou, uh, welcome to the stage, sir. Big victor in the Republican Party has got to be Ron DeSantos. Is he now the heir presumptive in terms of the Republicans' nominee for president in 2024? It's hard to tell. I think the issue is, number one, in Florida, he's clearly a liked governor. People love him there. And in a lot of places, he is someone seen as an appealing candidate that could take over after Donald Trump. However, I can see a potential for a fracture within the party moving forward because Donald Trump is not the kind of person... He's not going to be a Boris Johnson stepping away and saying, you know what, Rishi, you got this. He's not going to do that. If a primary fight uh, takes place and DeSantis decides to run, it's going to be the nastiest thing you've ever seen. And if for some reason he doesn't prevail, you could see a possibility of Donald Trump trying to run as an independent because he's not the kind of person that would back down. Now, obviously, this is me speculating. So whatever I just said, <laughs> you can take it with a grain of salt. Now, with that being said, if for some reason Donald Trump decides, you know what, he won't run, and he is to come on board and back DeSantis. I could see, especially in places like the Midwest, voting for the guy. I don't like him personally. I'm not even going to pretend to like him, but he will be a potential problem, especially if he were to face off with Joe Biden. But right now, it's too early to tell. We don't know what could happen. I mean, God forbid there could be a crisis that would happen. Florida is known to have hurricanes and stuff like that. Clearly, so far, he's been able to work with the federal government. I don't know. But there is some potential for him. I just don't see him getting along with Donald Trump. And that fight is beginning now. Mid-Atlantic looks at US, primarily US and UK politics. We have broadened our remit in 2022 to look at more global politics. Obviously, today we're looking at the midterms. And we have some of the great of, and the good of Clubhouse to share their thoughts about the supposed red wave, that, or at least the red wave that didn't happen. Rick Sanchez, I know that you spent a lot of time canvassing, used shoe leather to exercise your civic right in the run up to this election. Rick, was democracy on trial? yesterday. President Biden says it most definitely was. And, and if it was on trial, is now democracy safe? Are the election deniers, have they been consigned to the rearview window of American political history? It's mixed. I am glad that things didn't go massively the other way. But as far as the Trump brand, I think people might be correct that the Trump brand has been diminished. But the MAGA brand, I think, is here. 
to stay for a while. DeSantis is really part of the MAGA brand. You know, I've never really heard DeSantis comment much on foreign policy. So that will be interesting to to see if he starts to talk about that. He talks about immigration, but he doesn't talk much about foreign policy. He's going to be tough. He really believes in, in the power of the executive. So if he runs for president, I think he's going to demand, and he probably would get from the Republican Party, a lot more power. And so... You know, it, it really is a mixed bag. So I hope we we dodged a bullet in a little way. But if you look at the local elections, I was just looking at, at our county in L.A. County today. The local elections are really, really tight. I mean, there are a lot of elections that are within 10 votes, 25 votes. And that's an important thing, especially when you think long term to redistricting, which happens in seven more years. So we really have to look at the states, critically important when it comes to redistricting and how elections could be in the future. But, you know, I'm I'm kind of thrilled by what happened last night, but I'm not jumping for joy and I'm definitely not gloating about it. You're keeping an eye on democracy. Marshall Rankin, you are our second bona fide Republican on stage. What happened to the Republican Party last night? Why wasn't the the red wave, the red tsunami that was going to be a harbinger of all good things to happen in 2024? I think some people counted their eggs or their chickens before they hatched. I think you had the abortion stuff with Dobbs that played into the Democrats' hand and really excited some of their base. I think you also see that some of the Trump candidates who are like flat out election deniers like Mastriano, you know, aside from being unpopular, just don't really necessarily know how to run a campaign, right? And I think you've seen that be some trouble. And I think that at least if you talk to maybe the more bullish people or folks who are more cautious, I would have told you the House would probably be Republican. I wouldn't have told you it would be this close. But the Senate being Democrat seems to be right in line with what projections were several months ago. So I think a lot of that, and I think people got excited and they thought the momentum was shaking people and, you know, moving them up. So you have Nate Silver taking the Senate from lean Dem to toss up to lean Republican by five points. Right. Some of that stuff is just kind of reading into the tea leaves, things that aren't there. So I think there was probably a much more lackadaisical effort on some of these campaigns than the enthusiasm in the national press would have suggested. So when it came time to, as you said, put shoe leather to ground, they didn't have the people to do the work. And so therefore, we're not able to run a good campaign. Not to mention, I think some of the stuff they were saying in particular, if they were doing election denier stuff, folks have just kind of gotten tired of hearing about. And when you do your surveys at districts, usually that's not one of the things that comes up in your polling. But so you do a brush fire and a benchmark poll. Brush fire you do at the beginning, benchmark you do two thirds of the way through. And they break down demographics, all that kind of stuff. And you just don't hear people talking about the 2020 election. So the folks that were going on and on about it set themselves at a bit of a disadvantage because they were talking about things which the rest of them which the rest of their constituents were not talking about. So kind of a bundle of maladies covered with better democratic coverage of Senate seats and House seats than expected.
Paul Goodfellow, welcome to our stage. First time for you on the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Is one of the lessons of this going to be for the Republicans that candidate quality does matter? So I'm going to say from my perspective up here in the far north in Alaska, I think candidate quality absolutely matters. I know up here in our our house races, we saw Sarah Palin fail twice at managing to get herself elected to a lower elected office than she held 12 years ago as governor of the state. She ran a pretty poor quality campaign, barely stayed inside the state and managed to land herself 24 percentage points. So I think from a a state perspective, from where I'm sitting, I think candidate quality is absolutely going to be key moving forward. And I think if the Republican Party wants to get itself in a position where it can have a fighting chance at building a a broad-based coalition moving forward, they're going to have to take a long, hard look at candidate quality, at least from my perspective. Donna, we saw that the the, uh, the good citizens of Kentucky decided to enshrine into law last night a woman's right to choose. Is this going to be a, still may continue to be a burning issue for not only for women, but for Americans between now and the 2024 election, do you think? Hi, thank you, Royfield. I think that this will continue to be an issue moving forward. We saw that it was a major issue yesterday. And in fact, I had talked to some journalists about the Pennsylvania Senate race in recent weeks. And I said that the the women's vote was going to be critical to the race, particularly given, I think, in in abortion and and women's reproductive health access. And we definitely Senate race, I believe that was one of the factors. I think in ways that maybe the GOP had discounted. Michael, where does this leave the president right now? Is he now the Democratic Party's presumptive frontrunner in 2024? Or do you believe that the Democratic Party needs a fresh face for the next election? I very much believe they do. Even within the Democratic Party, there's concerns about sometimes his mental acuity. But yeah, absolutely. The the Democrat has a has a problem, honestly, with the, the core of their infrastructure from the DNC to the deep Schumer, Pelosi, et cetera. They have a very aging sort of leadership, and it's unfortunately um, seems to get further and further out of touch, as evidenced, I think, by some of the talking points over the last couple of years. So, yes, I think it's Biden's if he wants it. But in either way, the Dem leadership needs needs to be refreshed. Steve Crone, uh, you, you've joined us on stage. Tell us something about last night, which you think the mainstream media has missed? Is it possibly a change in face of the American electorate? Is it potential polarization? Or would you even go the opposite way and, and actually say that maybe the middle and its moderate America, which has triumphed last night? Give us the Steve Crone take on the 2022 midterms. Okay. Uh, I think I, I have three points. The first is I, I think To the extent there was a repudiation of anything last night, unfortunately, I don't think it was core make America great principles. I think rather it was the stop the steal anti-democratic process piece of that. We saw candidates who leaned on that burn But we saw other very conservative Republican candidates substantively do very well. And so as as a progressive, I'm sort of cautious about looking at this as any sort of repudiation of the Trump agenda, if there is such a thing. 
or the the very conservative, very reactionary policies that that were reflected in Trump's presidency. I, I, I'm not so sure they were repudiated. So that's the first thing that I think is a little different. Everyone's been saying painting with a broad brush, and I think correctly that that this is a bad sign for Trump and for Trumpism. But I really do think it's for that that particular piece of it is what I think swing voters obviously rejected and they see it for what it is, which is, you know, complete nonsense. That's the first thing I would say. The second, I think, that, that is a point that has been covered, but it's worth repeating. And that is, if the Democrats do succeed in holding the Senate, which I personally believe looks, looks like it's, it's, there's a good chance of that now, that just makes an enormous difference, not just in terms of the Supreme Court, but in terms of the federal judiciary Generally, we saw what Trump was able to do by, in terms of judicial appointments, and that, of course, notwithstanding the fact that he didn't necessarily control the Senate. And it's time, you know, I think that's an important thing for America, to, to, for, for Biden to be able to fill a lot of those federal judgeship vacancies. And then the third thing I think I would say, and this is just a very personal point, in Los Angeles, where we have a very apolitical mayoral race, you know, it's not a question of Democrats versus Republicans. It's an overwhelmingly Democratic city. It's, it's an issues campaign around homelessness, crime, other issues. And I, and I don't know where that repeats itself in other states. I live in Los Angeles. But I think it is interesting to note that in a city where it has nothing to do with these hot button political issues for the most part, you know, Caruso still holds a lead. I have no idea where that's going to end up. But but it does remind me, the last time a Republican was elected, Reardon, it was a similar situation where people were just nervous about a lot of issues in our city. And, and that's the last time we, we voted a conservative into the, into the mayoral mansion. And, and it looks like maybe that's going to happen again. Faced attacks. We took the hits. We weathered the storms. But we stood our ground. We set out a vision. We executed on that vision. And we produced historic results. And the people of this state have responded in record fashion. Now, while our country flounders due to failed leadership in Washington, Florida is on the right track. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, nearly a 20-point difference over Charlie Crist. Ron DeSantis got a huge boost uh, and is much more likely to run for president now than we would have guessed. DeSantis is probably the biggest single winner of the night. For everybody who doesn't want President Trump, Ron DeSantis will now become far and away the leading alternative and a superstar. Kellyanne Conway, what do you make of Ron DeSantis? And it wasn't just a little bit, it is a decisive win. It's huge. And now they have a veto-proof majority in the state legislature of the DeSantis win and, and Marco Rubio's win as well cannot be overstated in our third largest state. And I believe that last night, one of the sub-themes is, do I have confidence in your competence as my governor? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I want to bring this back to DeSantos because potentially we have a new Republican coalition for, for 2024 if Trumpism is going to be put behind us. In Miami, he expanded the Republicans' uh, voter base by some 20 points, which is massive from, from the 2016 election. And in, in, large, in large point, this is because of Latino voters. Is this a potential way that the Republican coalition can be rebuilt to counter the Democrats? Exitel. So one of the things that we haven't brought up yet is the demographics issue. And I think that really had an effect. Zoomers voted in, oh, I think Aram mentioned it. But generally speaking, the millennials are now, I think the youngest millennials are 28. And it's a huge generation. And the Zoomers are also a huge generation. And generally spe speaking, I think Aram mentioned that, they, that the Zoomers swung 28 points or something. But generally... It's pretty consistent in polls that you get a 10 to 15 percent preference for Democrats, where in previous generations, a 4 percent differential would be a big deal. So I really question Ron DeSantis coming from what's become a ruby red, very, very old state. And the way he has acted, which again, we get to values. And I think the biggest political shift is that shift from boomer values to millennial and Zoomer values. And of course, Generation X gets skipped over because that's the most Generation X thing ever. But I think that shift in values, which is going to grow, DeSantis just comes off like a mean person and he's too cute. And he's the type of guy who would kidnap, you know, people and send them to some unsuspecting beach town in Massachusetts and laugh about it. I don't think most of the country would accept DeSantis. And I think as those two generations ascend and, and, and take more political power, I think he's going to become less and less tenable. 
Uh, if I may, someone else I wanted to emphasize, I, I think that may be quite interesting, not necessarily on Greg's specific point about rebuilding the Republican Party, although I do think it's going to be a bit of soul searching for them, because I think there's been such a, you know, faction driven development given Trump is Kevin McCarthy, you know, he's seen by some people to be quite a good He's had some successes at trying to bridge the divide between different factions of the Republicans. I'm not going to go out on a whim and say too much about it, but he might be someone who, depending upon how things go by the end of this midterms, someone that may be able to sort of help begin to developing the sort of, you know, post-Trump Republican Party, whatever that be. I do think there's a potential for the Republicans to still appeal to certain younger generational voters. But as I say, I think it has to be along certain lines, more economics and maybe social, because quite clearly women come out to vote in force. And when things like Roe v. Wade happen, the Republicans can't just think that they can get away with that. They're going to have to go back and start thoroughly look at that and understand that they can't just sort of reverse or, you know, undo a lot of the progress that has been made in the past 50 years, 60 years, whatever time period. So if you're in the audience and you want to jump up and make a point, please raise your hand. We'll call you up and we'll try and get to you. Yeah, I've heard that Steve Scalise has thrown his hat in to the ring for Speaker of the House and wanted to know if maybe Marshall had an opinion on what that may look like going forward. I think it's going to be close, and they'll probably have to pick a consensus candidate. McCarthy may be the dude they choose just because he's the only person I've heard in contention. But with the majority being a lot slimmer, but that doesn't bode for the ability to do things at the very base of your party. It, it, it really argues that you should be doing things on the margins where you get more agreement. So I think if he becomes speaker, He'll have the choice to either press on and be a like hardcore partisan, or he'll make one of his two things, something Democrats can get on board with, and he'll be able to get agreement. But I think it bodes more towards some kind of agreement or deadlock rather than it bodes toward a yeah very swift working Republican House. So I, I think the margin being slim means you just can't do as much. I think it's important to, yeah, I think it's important to note that the uh, the margin appears to be gerrymandering. And for your international audience, gerrymandering is a term that we use for essentially drawing districts that favor one party rather than sort of coinciding with some sort of regional designation like a metropolitan area or something along those lines. So you see these sort of squiggly districts in the U.S. in certain places that have been drawn for partisan advantage. And in this cycle, it is, it is employed by both sides. However, the, the gerrymanders of the Republicans were essentially, they were left to stand by the Supreme Court of the U.S., whereas the worst gerry, gerrymandering on the Democratic side were, was actually thrown out, you know, most obviously. And that is just a weird, unique feature of the U.S. It's absolutely terrible. And just to back that point up, the four districts which I think are going to the Supreme Court were under DeSantos in Florida and it could well be that the Republicans take the House by four or less seats. So a gerrymandering, even though it didn't quite have the effect that the Democrats thought it was going to, still could have a potential decisive effect in, in this election. Chris B, welcome and also welcome to David Garcia. Chris B, what's your point? For 2024, I'd say keeping an eye on Pennsylvania, Michigan, and even Minnesota, where the Democrats control the governor, the state house, and the state senate, and all three, it's going to make very difficult for the GOP. 
to win in those places. My second point is about the squad has grown by my count, at least seven candidates. Uh, I've been endorsed by Bernie or the squad, two in Pennsylvania, one in Connor Lamb's former seat, and the other person, Summer Lee, will be the first African-American woman to represent Pennsylvania in the House. She was opposed by APAC, who threw millions of dollars at her in the primary and the general election to try to take her down. Two more squad members in Texas, Austin and Dallas, also in Illinois in the suburbs of Chicago. The first Latina representative in the Midwest will be going to the House and also in in Vermont. So the, the squad is growing in the Democratic caucus and more centrist Democrats seem to be losing. So I think the blue wall is in the, in the upper Midwest in 2024 and the squad is growing. Ben Mendelsohn, I don't know if I get you over there. Where are you? Are you in Rio? Are you in Ouagadougou? Or are you in somewhere else <laughs> similarly exotic right now, Ben? Where are you? I'm, I'm in the ether. I'm around you. No, I'm in Ouagadougou. As a matter of fact, this evening we had a, it was, is a delayed event at the German embassy. So uh, all of the ambassadors and diplomats headed down to the German. So it was interesting. And I actually got to spend some time with the American ambassador. And she, it's, it's interesting because she always, she knows I'm very political and I'm a partisan. And she's a good diplomat. She doesn't show her cards. But today, you know, she did a little. She did say that she felt relieved that there was no red, red wave. The thing that I was thinking about adding is I think this rift between Trump and, and DeSantis is, is a real thing. And I think that it's actually very dangerous for the MAGA Republican Party. Uh, first of all, my belief is MAGAs are the real rhinos. People, the Republicans that they call rhinos, are lifelong Republicans. A large group of the people that call themselves MAGA have never been Republicans before, and they are only Republicans because of Donald Trump. So my feeling is, is that that large group of, of the Republican Party will never support uh, DeSantis when, as long as Donald Trump is alive. And for, the, for DeSantis, DeSantis actually operate, he needs those people, but they're not going to be there. They are going to go back under the rock. They, they, they're not, they're anti-institutional and they're only following Donald Trump. I think that there's, you know, some bad news for MAGA in the near future. I'm not sure how that'll manifest itself, but I'd be looking, I'd be looking there. Uh, thank you for that. Aaron Berger. Generally speaking, I don't think that Republicans are going to be, a, GOP is going to be a tenable party after 2024. Trump is going to be the nominee. If he's not, Bruce will not come out for him and not in significant numbers. If it's de- that's why it can't be DeSantis. So it's definitely going to be Trump. At the same time, independents are not going to vote for him and instead go for the Democrat, which again, I believe is going to be Gavin Newsom. He hasn't announced yet, but he's been telegraphing it for at least, I don't know, three or four months. And he's going to win at that point. So, uh, and again, I don't know basically if Trump is physically unable to run, he will not choose a successor, which will fracture the MAGA movement completely and further degrade GOP influence. I think it's entirely possible that the United States becomes essentially a one-party government in the next eight years. 
I was just going to ask Aaron, I'm very curious to hear about his, you know, thoughts on, you know, on, on Newsom, because I've heard mixed things. And I'm not sure, you know, whether he's, you know, a clear cut contender, as many people think. I'm struggling to really see what Democratic candidates there are for 2024. I mean, Biden said in the past, what, a couple of hours that he's going to run again, probably he's going to take Thanksgiving to think about it. I'm not sure I want Biden to run again. Like, you know, he's older than half of DC at this point. But then equally, I'm not a massive fan of the squad either. Any group that self-describes himself as the squad, I think is rather, well, anyway. So I don't know, just some thoughts there. I'm curious for Aaron or anyone's thoughts. I like to stir the pot. There is a candidate. Obviously, my hope would have been for him to at least do a year or two in office and see how he gets to run. But Westmore of Maryland, the guy that won yesterday, I was looking into him. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know the guy or anything like that. I wasn't really following the race. But obviously, you know, when you hear someone fresh, something like that, sometimes, you know, you get tempted to go digging around and he might just be the future of the Democratic Party. I mean, a combat veteran. And the problem is, though, he has never run for office before. He's not an Obama who was at least a state senator before he ran for the U.S. Senate. So that's going to be tricky. Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, she is someone that definitely does have potential. She's well-liked. But again, like you said, all of this will be dependent upon where Joe Biden decides to run. And uh, one last thing, Roy Phil, while you were talking, Donald Trump just posted on his Truth Social, and, and I'm going to read it for you. He said this, now that the election in Florida is over and everything went quite well, shouldn't it be said that in 2020, I got 1.1 million more votes in Florida than Ron DeSantis got this year, 5.7 million to 4.6 million. And then he said, just asking, question mark. I read this out loud to say that the war between DeSantis and Donald Trump has just started. You guys are going to see the most interesting, well, not interesting, but chaotic nonsense that you'd ever seen. If you taught 2016, Ted Cruz versus Donald Trump, or someone like Marco Rubio and Donald Trump was a joke, wait wait until this thing is done. And I don't know, like Aaron Berger just said, there are so many people within the MAGA movement, they're not gonna, if Trump is running, they're definitely not gonna support Ron DeSantis. And that's because these are people that are just actually rhinos, like Ben Mendelsohn called them. They, they were never Republican. They're only in there because of Donald Trump. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Back to Aaron's comment, I think I think that's a little far-fetched, to be honest, Aaron. But I do think it does underline a, a deep danger in the Republican Party, and that is that the the small majority ironically empowers the the sort of MAGA crowd or the Russia wing of the Republican Party, at least if you believe the reporting. To give Kevin McCarthy the speakership, they are demanding investigations into Hunter Biden, investigations into Afghanistan, investigations into impeachment of Joe Biden, impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary. And that, I think, is where the real danger lies. Because if one thing has that this election has shown, besides values, is the electorate really wants Washington to work for them. And I do think, you know, in many ways, if if you look, we've had the most productive legislative session for decades. 
if not ever, and especially with this small majority. And if the MAGA crowd has Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene frothing at the mouth on cable television for the next two years, it's going to be an absolute landslide. It's not even going to be close. I don't think that the the Republican Party will somehow collapse, but that plus the demographic issues they're facing, that's a pretty steep, steep hill to climb. I I didn't mean to say that the Republican Party would collapse. I meant that they would lose the ability to win a national election again, I think. So I thought what what Mamadou, what he said was somewhat kind of prescient, that number one, he said, we're going to... You know, you were going to see this bare knuckle fight between Trump and, and DeSantis. And then at the end of the show, he comes out with a, a tweet from Trump on from Truth Social. This is it now. This is the fight for the direction of the Republican Party going forward. And another was kind of interesting. Even Kerryanne Conway seemed to be anointing DeSantis yesterday. What says you, sir, as the Republican? I th- look, everything I've heard, to be honest, is right. It's just that I come from the point of view that, yeah, you're correct, but I kind of approve of it. I mean, I would definitely say that I am now a new rhino. I was never, I'm only part of the Republican Party because it was a host, if you like, that, you know, people of my interest could utilize in the mainstream to, you know, achieve ends. How can I say? MAGA is not against the Democrats. It's also against the Republicans. It really is against the political class, if you like. So it would have absolutely no nostalgia or romance for the Republican Party. So we would happily destroy the Republican Party if it meant acting on principle. And I think that's that's why everybody's been quite right. I think it will be a bare knuckle fight between DeSantis and Trump because Trump represents, personifies, if you like, a plague on both your houses approach to politics. You know, these people have not served the the average American stiff is the kind of rhetoric that motivates me and people like me. So, yeah, we would happily we would happily scorched earth the Republican Party on our way out and just say politics is basically over for the little guy now. See, this is the problem. This is what I was trying to say at the top. Because the mystique and the magic and the assumed power of Trump is over, even if we have won the House now, which it looks like, it's going to be a consensus House. They're going to actually do politics. They're going to, unless you're the most magsman, you're going to actually, you know, across the aisle and do do politics, basically, because that's going to look better to the electorate. That's the end of the MAGA influence, frankly. If we're going to be doing old style, you know, George Bush, Clinton kind of across the aisle kind of negotiations, well, that's not the point of MAGA. The point of MAGA so, is so Paul, to... Paul, it's the politics of nihilism then. Yes. Is, is what, you're, what you're saying. Utter nihilism. It has no point then just to burn down not only the Republican Party, but the American democratic process. Yes. Yes, because... Wait, also the democratic uh, process? Well, sure. I mean, this is the this is the problem. You've got fifty percent of the country. If we'd have done better, if my side had done better, then they would play more nice, if you like. The fact is, you've got fifty percent of the country that is how can I say anti the system, frankly. But let's just say there's a few of them are independents, etc. Let's call it twenty five percent of the country would happily torch the system. I I do honestly think that. The, the Trump being president was actually a steam 
release valve. It was a lightning conductor for the feelings of disaffection throughout the country. If, if there will not be an outlet, I do think that this is going to cause more and more turbulence and turmoil in the country, not less. Having Trump in the White House, if I was on the opposing side, would be like taking you know, taking a, a jar of jam to a picnic. You put it over there and the ants go to it, you know, and you can get on with your picnic. And take that away now. Take, take the outlet away for these kind of views, which is kind of what's happening. I do think it's going to be explosive over the next, certainly after 24. I can't see the Republicans winning 24 now with whoever. So yes, if they put Newsom up, Newsom will win. I totally agree. Look, you know, I'm one of the MAGA people that acknowledges that Hillary won the popular vote, you know, and it's just like if they'd have, it was a tortoise and the hare. If if Hillary had actually campaigned better, she'd have got those extra seventy thousand votes. So it would have all just been a dream and an illusion. What's happened is that there was a moment in history when we actually got near the citadel, and to have that now taken away, the feelings that the feelings that generated that. 2016 victory haven't gone away and won't go away. So, so to see Paul, business as usual in politics, I think is going to cause more disaffection Paul, and more aggression. Paul, I, I must admit, I'm totally confused because you said you could see the Citizel, you know, that Mag could see the Citizel. It had its keys to the Citizel. It sat in the Citizel, Citadel for, for four years. But Bren, I know you are a bony Friday signed up uh, Republican. Can, can I just interrupt Royfield? Uh, just to clarify oh. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But to be honest, he was never taken seriously as a as a president by the establishment. And the, I would but, say the... It, so that's all I'm saying. It's like, no, it was always seen as an aberration and talked about as if it was, you know, like uh, in-laws visiting from uh, Wisconsin. They'll be gone soon, you know? And that's the citadel, if you like, that I'm talking about, is the acceptance of like, this is a legitimate movement and a legi legitimate point of view. Yeah, they gave him, they let him sit in the office for four years. But, you know, he was in office, but never truly in power. It was almost an aster asterisk next to his name. But I'll shut up now. But, but surely that was because of the way he conducted himself whilst, whilst he was in office. But right, this Correct. is what I want to do, Correct. right? Let's have, because uh, I know Brent has come on stage, Brent has come on stage, Daniel, and then Jesse. Uh, I want to first come to Brent. Brent, you're a bona fide, card-carrying Republican. What does last night's results mean and say to you? Well, it's interesting because in certain races, we see MAGA Republicans win or they were, ex were expected to, and we see some shortcomings. Part of the establishment is going to look at this and say, hey, do we have to back these people? Because at the end of the day, there is a reality that the GOP establishment backs these Trumpian candidates because we understand we need their base now. Their base is a built-in, baked-in portion of the constituency that we have to have in order to win general elections in certain states and potentially federally as long as trump's here i wasn't watching the stage but whoever was speaking last hit the nail on the head trump is a fever that the gop is trying to ride out right we accept that we have this fever <laughs> we have to live with it for now the hope is eventually it breaks and trumpers split out into their own space the reality is for now we are so close neck and neck across the country with the dnc that if we lose that bubble if we lose that trump or maga voting block 
we will not win in places that have been classically Republican. We simply don't have the numbers. We need those Trump votes in order to maintain. So he's a reality that the GOP has accepted because we don't have an alternative. And there is not a stomach in the leadership anymore to fight him, right? When he first primary, when he first ran in his initial primary, you saw leadership with an energy to push him out. You don't see that anymore. He's he's accepted as this reality that we get to exist with if we want a chance at winning. I don't look at last night as as this shiny beacon that we can win without Trump candidates. I look at it as we're going to have to continue to put some flawed Trump candidates forward and try to stoke the base behind them. Because if we lost with moderates and the Trumpers, we would have gotten wiped out without the Trumpers. Yeah, that's interesting because the the at least the the immediate analysis is saying that those Trumpian MAGA candidates invariably fared badly, with the exception of JD Vance. I think it's Johnson over in Wisconsin, and obviously Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene has got back in. But fundamentally, you know, Herschel Walker, Doctor Oz, just off the top of my head, and then a whole slew of other people who who Trump seems to have backed underperformed. I, I would push back on Herschel Walker. I think Herschel Walker did exactly what, the from the establishment perspective, Herschel Walker was a contender. Herschel Walker has pushed it to a runoff. That was what was expected of Herschel Walker. No one expected Herschel Walker to walk away with the flag in this election. We expected a runoff. So Herschel performed like he was supposed to. Dr. Oz, eh, I, I could have told you that wasn't going to pan out, but... In the primary process, the people who ran against them that lost, they probably would have picked up more independent voters, but they would not have maintained the, the MAGA vote. The reality about the MAGA vote is it has no loyalty, right? So if the MAGA candidate does not win, they don't show up in a general to vote for our moderate candidate. However, if a moderate candidate loses and we put a MAGA candidate up, the moderates will still show up and vote. So it's just a reality of the numbers that are willing to show up regardless. Gotcha. All right. Now, in the aim of being fair to all, Brent, you've been waiting for quite some time. Brent, Daniel, Jesse. Well, so I just make a few points. First on the Herschel Walker point, to say he was a contender, I think, misses the point. If you had a normal Republican that could run similar to Brian Kemp, the Republican Party would have would have that seat today. And it, it's not very hard to imagine a Republican that is similar to Brian Kemp in, in mannerism, mannerism and who wouldn't have lost as many split voters as Herschel Walker did. The second point I'd make is that you know this whole well this shows that we're an even country etc i think that misses the point there's no world in which this shouldn't have been a bloodbath for the for the democrats the the economy is extremely high inflation you you looked at the at the right way wrong way numbers of the electric that came out to vote i mean every everything but maybe the abortion number was 0.1 
pointing towards a bloodbath, but yet the voters rejected the Republican Party. A lot of that has to do with the branding of the Republican Party that is toxic. And in a in a year in which the fundamentals are better for the Democrats, I don't think you see a 50-50 showing. I think you see a, a much bigger wave for the Democratic Party if, if the fundamentals look, look even or even positive for the Democratic Party. The final point I'd make is watch the margin at, for the House of Representatives. You know, I, I think some predictions have the House majority at 219, you know, 219, 217 to 217 or a 219 House majority. If, if the Republican Party only has a two-seat majority in the House, that's going to be utter chaos. They'll, they'll get to do their investigations but actual control the House of Representatives, it will be, for lack of better words, a pure shit show two years into the next election. That's all I got. No, I must admit, Brent, I couldn't agree with you more that MAGA Republican candidates underperform. And you made the, the excellent point that the governor of Georgia got in, but, but not Herschel Walker, the prospective Republican senator. So that tells us that candidate quality does matter. Daniel, you're up next. Yeah, no, my I'm a robot on error mode today because I don't understand these election results. <laughs> when you look historically at it, it doesn't really make much sense. I think the big thing that kind of hurt them was definitely Roe v. Wade was a huge factor in it. I mean, the Gen Z turnout also kind of blows my mind. I mean, Gen Z is coming out in a midterm election. Who hears about young people coming out in midterms? I mean, that's pretty wild. I mean, it's just anyone who pretends that they know what's going on, I don't, goes against what most people have been told would happen. Just before we come to, to Jesse, Adams, I know you're sat looking at the statistics and stuff. I kind of said about an hour plus ago that this was a turnout. Was this just a turnout election? Very obviously, the Democrats did have one issue which could fire up their base, which was Dobbs, Roe versus Wade. But Adam, can you, do you have the figures to go through the turnout and, and basically Gen Z's, uh, et cetera, who actually came out to vote and to, to illustrate why maybe the normal perception of this election is being turned on its head? Adam Kay. Looking at some critical states like the Georgia Senate exit polls from NBC, you had Gen Z, 13% of the electorate were between the ages of 18 and 29. 22% between the ages of 30 and 44, and you had 63% of Zoomers voting Democrat, 56% of Millennials voting Democrat. So yeah, even in Florida, while it, the, there were more younger people voting Republican, you still had a majority in both the Zoomer and Millennial age groups voting Democrat in the governor race exit polls. And I think it was probably even more pronounced in the Senate race with Rubio. It's, it's once you hit at Generation X, the 45s, that you start to see substantial swings to the Republicans. So it's higher. Th those are higher rates. I mean, it's pretty consistent across uh, across a lot of the key states that you saw Zoomer show up, represent anywhere between 10 and 15 percent of the of the vote, which is pretty much in line with with the exit polls and uh, some of the projections. But, you know, when you have 30 to 40% of the electorate under the age of 45, you know, this, this is good news for the Democrats, both for 2024 and, and into the, the more distant future. Thank you for the analysis there. Jesse, you've waited patiently. 
Hey, yeah, I think a lot of the conversations about young people and their voting patterns and just voting in general, I'm a teacher unabashedly. So on this app, I let people know every time because these are young people that see through all of the rhetoric and the like the more silly like culture war points. These kids are a lot smarter. And I mean, Gen Z in general are more tech savvy and more research savvy than I think people give them credit for. So they may fall for a tagline or two. But when they when they come out in numbers and they've kind of seen the road decision and the CRT scare and the six or seven other culture war points, it's not even that it required them to have a specific ideology. They just know bullshit when they see it. And I think that's this is this is a kind of a bigger message to Republicans overall, because I mean, we see it on this app all the time. If you're going to have culture war blood sport, then you have to be ready for the blood part. Because Gen Z doesn't mind calling you out and figuring it out and recognizing whether or not you're lying. They're also not, they don't shy away from doing their own homework about policy. So like having a million culture war talking points is not going to sell them on whether or not they'll have a planet to live on. So, so it's, it's stuff like that that I've heard over the however many months leading up to this red wave that we were supposed to see that it's really, it makes me happy for the younger people because they are, something's got to give from both parties or the kids are going to figure it out without us. Can I jump in and just say, I think that's a fantastic point. And I think another problem, and it goes back to this issue of the Republicans wanting to do all these investigations. And I do think it's kind of a boomer sensibility this kind of long-running culture wars. I know, I think Gen Xers are, are kind of tired of it. I mean, that's, we don't really feel that's our fight. Like the, you know, I have brothers who are boomers, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm an older Xer. So the, the generation just above me, they're much more into that, where to me, it seems a little bit silly. But I know much like Jesse, I mean, I've become an educator. It's my first semester. But a lot of those kind of dog whistles are lost on would be or would be lost on my Zoomer students. They don't see the cultural landmarks that are sort of or the cultural touchstones that a boomer audience would be reacting to. They just see a bunch of very inauthentic older people talking about frothing at the mouth about a bunch of stuff that they don't see really helps them or, or matters to them. I do have a question which I'd like to ask actually, which relates a little bit to the conversation we were having a little bit earlier. Maybe we can work it in here, but there was a candidate yesterday who, and maybe I'm overplaying it. So, you know, just shut me down if it's not a big point. But the guy, George is obviously really, really close. And there was this chap, Chase Oliver, who actually got above like 2%, which for me, I've never seen that before. So I was just curious, you know, is uh, could we see a sort of a growth of one of the smaller parties on the right side, splitting the Republicans if there were to be this sort of disintegration or breakup of it because they can't seem to get that as much support anymore? Or, or am I talking a bit of a pipe dream? So, well, I'm from Georgia, so I'll say this from a perspective from the perspective of a Georgian. He did so well because the candidates were garbage. I think that when you, you know, I, I'm speaking in terms of right now, so obviously things change generationally, especially. 
as the boomers die off, this could change. But, you know, if you have quality candidates, you're going to just see your splits across the party lines. But you have enough people that, well, how do I put this? Post 2020, post the election denial thing with Trump and the issues between Trump and Kemp, it created a climate in Georgia that was distinctly different, I think, from a lot of places that are purple or, you know, even red, because, you know, even though Georgia, I would consider a purple state right now, it's still has recently been a red state, but we we sit in a different place because we were kind of directly attacked by Trump. I think that that 2% has a lot to do with that. I think there are plenty of states where you might be able to see an independent vote grow. I don't really see Georgia as being one of those places. I think George, I think a lot of people rejected Herschel Walker because, for obvious reasons. They rejected him because a lot of people in Georgia are pissed at Trump. But Warnock was also a terrible candidate. Was that guy a libertarian? Yeah. He was indeed. Yeah, there was in 2016, Johnson got like, I think, 3% of the vote. So I kind of see that as the, the, the peak of the libertarian movement nationally. And I don't think nationally it's ever going to get that high again. And it's always, it's always going to be like a little bit of a spoiler for Republicans. And like in this case, kept, like Kelly is saying, because Walker's terrible candidate kept a place that Republicans should win from getting the, the 50%. But like if we're talking about millennials and Gen Z, I don't see any libertarian movement coming out of those groups. I see a lot of progressives and socialists, frankly, in, in those generations. So there you go. There you have it. From our brains trust, from our experts, some hot takes, some considered opinion and some rumination on last night's midterms. As we are recording this, neither house has been called, whether it's Congress or the Senate, but either which way, but the, the Democratic Party has at least surpassed the expectations of the pollsters and have kept things competitive in both of those, in both of those houses. So what this means for President Biden going forward is it's some level of, of a thumbs up on his first two years in office, but what it means for the Republican Party, only time will tell. You can contact me where I'm royfield at gmail.com if you'd like to tell me where I'm going wrong on, on this podcast or maybe even suggest a future topic. Don't forget, left to center politics, we all say is right thing in politics, but we don't demonize our right-leaning brothers and sisters, but what we do and try and bring them into the fold is by winning them over with the strength of our argument because we do believe in the commons, the space where we can agree to disagree. And this is the basis of just about any. Me, Royfield Brown, giving you a snapshot with my friends and with pundits from Clubhouse looking at the midterms. And just the last thing, if you are listening to this podcast and the podcast is growing, as I said, we had 10,000 downloads per episode last month, which is utterly fantastic. Why don't you do this? If you listen to this at home, go to an app store of your choice, download the Clubhouse app, and it means that you can be in the audience when we do one of these live recordings, which then also means you have the ability to raise your hand and to be part of the podcast. So be one of the 10,000 who are listening, but also be part of the Clubhouse crowd. Take care. That's been me, Royfield Brown. Look after yourselves, but look after your loved ones even better. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.